The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus stood among the disciples and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and terrified and thought that they were seeing a ghost. He said to them, Why are you frightened? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. See that it is myself. Touch me and see, for a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While in their joy they were disbelieving and still wondering, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opens their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. In the name of the Holy Trinity, one God. Amen. In 1958, the Hebrew Benevolent Congregation Temple, the oldest temple in Atlanta, was bombed, and no one was ever convicted of the crime. It's believed that the people responsible for it were those who opposed the uh, rabbi, who was an activist and a very early uh, leader in the civil rights movement in Atlanta. The temple suffered extensive damage, and writing in her book, uh, Melissa Fay Green, talking about the bombing, wrote that the first Sabbath service after the bombing, the temple with its doors off its hinges and with boards over the windows was filled to overflowing. The rabbi, Jacob Rothschild, apparently a very dynamic preacher, he came into the, uh, to the pulpit, so to speak. He stood there. He surveyed the great crowd that had gathered. And then finally he spoke and he said, so this is what it takes to get you to temple. <laughs> Many of you will recall that after the, the attack of 9-11, the, the places of worship in this country were filled with people. They came seeking answers to questions for which there were no answers. Most, they, most of them probably came because they were a part of a community. And they needed to be together. They needed to support one another and needed to pray together. So that is one of the reasons that uh, people turn out in great numbers is when, when there is a tragedy of some sort, we do want to come together. But this morning, uh, there's a the passage from Acts is preceded by a story that's very important to what was read this morning. And in that uh, reading, we will see a crowd of 5,000. They came together, not because of a tragedy, but because someone was healed who was not able to walk for all of his life. 
I think that uh, that particular account is very important for us to have a context for what was read from Acts. Peter and John had gone to the temple. It was in the afternoon. They had gone there for the afternoon prayers and for the sacrifice. I think it's important for us to note that the disciples, when they were in Jerusalem, as faithful Jews, they were still going to the temple to pray and to be present at the sacrifices. Uh, When in Jerusalem, that was their practice. Now, it happened that every day a man who had been unable to walk from birth was brought probably on a litter to one of the gates that went into the temple. And he was there uh, asking for for alms. And it was interesting that that particular uh, practice was important because for Jews in Jerusalem, uh, the, the two things that was important in order to be a pious Jew was to go to prayers at the temple and to give alms. So if you were a beggar, the place to be was at one of the gates entering the temple because these faithful Jews would be coming for worship, for prayer, and they would also, of course, be giving alms. It was important, I think, for this man to be there every day because he had no other way to make a living. Well, he asked Peter and John for something from them. And Peter said, we don't have silver or gold. And then the scripture says that the disciples, the two disciples, looked intently at him. And they told him to get up and walk in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And immediately the man stood up and he walked into the temple with the two disciples. Now, people saw this happen and they realized this is the guy who's been outside the temple all of his life. He's not been able to walk and now he's walking. So a great crowd, a crowd of 5,000 gathered at Solomon's portico, which is on the east side inside the temple. And they gathered there to praise God and to give thanks that this had happened to this man. Now, this is where our passage today picks up. But I think it's important for us to understand what that story might be pointing to. We need to remember that uh, someone who uh, had a physical infirmity could not go into the temple to worship. In a sense, they were separated from the uh, faith community. But once he was healed, he was able to go in. He had been restored. And I think what the writer of uh, the book of Acts was trying to do was to show that the, uh, the resurrection has to do with restoration. It has to do with bringing us into communion, into community with God. I think that's so important for us to understand. And later we'll see that uh, Peter essentially is challenging uh, those who are there, that 5,000. How do you respond to the resurrection? How do you respond to the presence of God acting in your life? Well, this, this gathered crowd, and Peter being uh, an amazing preacher, apparently, he could not pass up the opportunity. So what we have in the text that was read today is Peter's sermon. He essentially uh, is saying to them that they've had an encounter with God, but they think it was something that Peter or John had done. And then uh, Peter says, no, it's not by our power. It's not by our piety. It was done By Jesus the Christ of Nazareth. And he chides them a bit about 
assuming that the disciples could have done this. And then he goes on to connect the God that he's referring to to, to the God uh, that is known to all of them, the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac. And he's identifying to the God that all Jews understood. They knew who that God was. And, and Peter is saying, this is the God that acted just now in your presence. Well, I decided that I would preach on this text rather than the gospel today, primarily for what comes next. I know that uh, some of you probably bristled at hearing these words. You rejected the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer given to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. I think it's imperative for us to remember and never forget Peter, a Jew, is addressing Jews about Jesus, who was a Jew. These are Jews talking to Jews. The early church was not a Christian mission. It was, it was an extension of Judaism. And many times I think that we have lost something because we have forgotten that we are a sect of Judaism. We have lost sight of our roots. And in fact, the church later on became so anti-Semitic, and perhaps in places today still is. I think it's very important for us to never forget that Christianity in its beginning was really Jewish. Uh, Amy, Amy Jill Levine is a Jewish New Testament scholar. Now, there aren't very many of those, as you might imagine. But she reminds us that the Jesus movement was a Jewish movement. Strong anti-Jewish writings date from the second and third centuries. But even at the time of the nascent church, even in the second and third centuries, there was still a church that was multicultural and was made up of many ethnicities. Scholars date the book of Acts as either the late first century or the second century. So it's easy to understand how some of this influence of anti-Jewish uh, writing and uh, anti-Semitism was starting to find its way into what we now have as our canon. I think it's also important for us to remember that there was a lot of tension between traditional Judaism and the newborn church. And you can understand why. You can imagine that it was like a church split, I would guess, in families. It was like a split in understanding how to worship God. So it became a point of tension. And there was a lot of tension in the early church. Uh, recall that Paul was a Pharisee. And his mission, until he had the encounter with the risen Lord, his mission was to persecute Christians. In fact, he ordered the stoning of Stephen. So even in our history, we find this, this tension between Judaism and the early church. We as Christians must stand against that kind of anti-Semitism that we see and we hear about. We must stand against it wherever we see it, whenever we hear about it. It's essential to us. Jews are our brothers, and in fact, they're really our older brothers. And we are the ones who have been grafted in to the people of God. Jesus was a threat to both the authorities in the temple and to Rome. 
Remember that uh, Rome is all Rome wanted when it came to Palestine was for it to be peaceful. The last thing they wanted was any kind of upset. And Jesus posed a threat to that. And, of course, the authorities in the temple were upset because he seemed to be leading the people in another direction. Anti-Semitism is on the rise, they say, in Europe. And I think there are probably other places as well. We tend to hear more about it, I believe, from Europe. But we must always remember that in, the, in our own scriptures is the seedbed for anti-Semitism. So we must be very, very careful how we understand these things. So Peter, you know, speaking with fellow Jews, even there, he lets them off the hook a little bit. He said, I know you did this out of ignorance. Repent and then come back to God. So even in that very, very difficult passage, there is an opening. I think it's important for us to all know that there's an opportunity for all of us, no matter what we have done, no matter how we might have offended another person, how we might have offended God, we can return. We can, again, have relationship with God and with those we may have hurt. Peter's sermon is an invitation to those 5,000 that were gathered in the portico to be restored to God, just as the man who was healed was restored to the worshiping community. And I think this is a sermon not just for them, but for us today as well. The message of the resurrection is that in some way, and in a way that we really don't completely understand, what happened on the cross and the life that Jesus lived in some way restored us to community with God, restored us to a life in God. We don't understand how that happened, but that is the Easter message. We have been restored. This morning, uh, we have the privilege of baptizing baby Harry. And he, he comes because there are faithful parents, loving parents, who will bring him here and are really asking us to invite him into our community. It isn't based on Harry's faith. It isn't based on Harry's good works, but rather he's coming to us and his parents and godparents are entrusting him to us. It's important, I think, for us to see that our life in Christ is supported by a community. We don't do it alone. And I think it's always important when we have a baptism, especially of a baby, for us to be reminded that we come as we are. And we just offer ourselves. So this morning we give thanks for that wonderful message of Easter. That we are restored to communion with God. And we give thanks also that we have the opportunity to welcome Harry into this community. And to be part of the Christian church. Amen.